0: This episode is powered by denmeditation.com. The meditation is the primary focus. The bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal, your host and the founder of Den Meditation. This is an important episode. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time because it's a conversation I personally wanted to have. We have Kevin Hines on. Um, At age 19, he went to the Golden Gate Bridge and he jumped, but he survived, which I mean, what are the chances of that? He survived and he said instantly the minute he jumped, he regretted it. And he came out and when he got pulled into that hospital, all that kept coming out of his mouth was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he's turned his life around and now he spends his entire life still battling depression, still battling bipolar, still, you know, battling suicidal ideation. So I like what he says in this episode. It's not like he's fixed. He's learning how to work with it and how to accept it. And he goes around really inspiring And helping those who are either thinking about it or who have survived, really helping them get to a point of not attempting to take their life, which I think is so beautiful. And part of the reason I wanted to have him on so badly is, you know, I feel like it's becoming more and more prevalent and we're not all talking about it. And there's a lot of misunderstanding when we see or know someone who takes their life. And how can we be more understanding of what someone might be going through. How can we understand that this is not a selfish act? How can we understand that there may be things we can also do to help and try? And for a lot of us we don't know even how to begin doing that, right? He gives us unbelievable tips in this. It's a really important conversation. Um his personal practice is woven within. He has a beautiful passage that I think will make us all think. You know, to remember we are all here together. We are all going through different things. And how can we be more present for each other. So take a listen to Kevin Hines. Kevin, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while.
1: Oh, wow. Thank you.
0: No, it's true because I feel like. It's like it's almost as if I manifested you into my creation because there's so much going on, as you know, you're aware this is your space. This is your world. And I feel like all we're doing is, you know, we're seeing so much suicide over and over again of all different ages of, you know, you know, male, female, it doesn't matter. Like the story is different for everyone, but there's so much of it. And I feel like it's getting to a point that a lot of people don't quite understand, you know, and everyone wants to, like everyone wants to understand. And I kept being like, I wish I could talk to someone who was at that point so I could understand it myself because I want to understand. And then literally that day, it was like, your story popped up, something popped up and I'm like, Oh my God, this is crazy. And so thank you. Thank you for being present. Thank you for being here literally and figuratively (laughs) because I feel like you're helping so many people and also just helping people like me who just want to understand so that we can help more people. Um, So, you know, at the end of your documentary, you say there's 40, it's every 40 seconds, someone commits suicide. That is an astonishing number, like astonishing. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, one of the main things for you, it's not even just that you survived and we'll get into your story because it's incredible. It's not only that you survived, you've said, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've instantly regretted it right after you jumped.
1: Yeah, uh, the moment my hands left the rail, it was an instantaneous regret, and this kind of absolute recognition that I had just made the greatest mistake of my life, and it was likely too late. Uh, you know, uh, w- people tend to look at those who die by suicide, and they say things like, "Oh, they had everything," or "Oh, they were so they seemed so happy," or. Oh, well, they had they they were financially stable. None of that matters when you're in lethal emotional pain. None of that comes into the equation. And people also say with those who die by suicide that they were selfish, and that's nonsense. Um, to be selfish, you have to know you're hurting other people. And people who t- t- people who die by suicide or even those who attempt are are in the beliefs in, in this stuck stuck in this belief that. They are the burden to everyone around them so that they when they take themselves out of that equation, they're doing everyone else a solid. Um, And and that's a that's an actual selfless act. Um, It's it's all brought on by delusional thinking. It's not rational. It's not logical. Um, Everyone who loved them will miss them until the end of time and they will be broken forever in some way, shape or form because of that loss. But the person who is suicidal can't see that. All they can see, know, feel, touch, and hear is pain. And and I, and I always ask people, what is the one thing you want to happen when you find yourselves in excruciating physical pain? What do you want that pain to do? And That's physical pain. Brain pain is 300,000 times worse because so many people around you invalidate it. Mm. And so if we can teach people who are sane and well, people that are doing great to look out for their peers, their loved ones and their friends, and to have the conversation of suicide and suicide prevention at the breakfast, lunch, and dinner table, we could save a lot more lives. We're afraid of the conversation. Thus, we don't have it. And that's the mistake people are making. You know, uh, there's an interesting fact, the crisis tax line, uh, has determined through their algorithm, which is extremely AI intelligent. They have experienced through their algorithm that asking the three questions, are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you made plans to take your life? And do you have the means in that order get a more truthful answer than even the question, are you thinking of suicide because of the taboo on the word suicide? And they get a more truthful answer than are you thinking of self-harm? Because by definition, self-harm isn't suicide, it's self-harm. And so, Let's educate people about that so they can ask that question in any setting, but let's not start with that. Cause that's kind of a, you're like, Whoa, well, Hey buddy, relax.
0: Well, cause I was going to say, one of the things you say <laughs> is you wish someone just asked you, like, are you thinking about committing suicide? And my reaction then too, was like, that's a hard question because sometimes you also don't want, it's like, are you, it's again, so talk more, keep going deeper into this. Cause this is where right. it's so helpful.
1: Right, but see, that's where language really matters. So, so personally, I don't say "committed suicide" because I feel like that's committing a crime or committing adultery or committing mm. a violent act. I say "died by suicide," like someone would die of any other organ diseased, um, because that normalizes it. Or dying from brain pain, or dying from depression, um, and, and and that lets you understand that there's a reason this is happening and it's not just coming out of thin air. But then, but then we talk about like um, why why do people consider themselves a burden to others in this dire situation. Well, uh, they're so silent in their pain and they're so quiet about their struggles that they're not asking the people around them who love them. If they love them, they're not asking the people around them. If they need them, they're not asking the people around them. If they were gone from this world, would they, would they be happy or sad? If they had asked them, those individuals would be like, I need you. I love you. I care about you. I'd be devastated if you were gone. But in my instance, when I, when I was, In my room, writing my suicide note, my father was in his room, willing, ready, and able to help me if I had asked. Right. Uh, But that the next morning, on the morning of my attempt, um, when he said, Hey, Kevin, what's wrong? I didn't say what I was going through. I said, Nothing's wrong, Dad. I just wanted to tell you that I love you. Because in my mind, it was for the very last time. Had I said to my father, I'm suicidal, he would have done everything in his power to stop me from what I was about to do. And so in that
0: moment, because I think that's exactly what I'm saying, what could your dad, especially let's say with a kid, because we know what happens with those responses. It's always like, how are you? Fine. Nothing. That you get shut down constantly. It almost becomes part of the, the relationship as frustrating as it can be. How do you, and you're talking about words matter and they do. So I think this is super helpful. How can someone push through that or know that this is more dire than my child just going through a bad spell or this is more dire than they're just in a thing they'll get out of it or they don't want to talk to me right now. Let me give them space because don't you feel like some people may go to that place? They want space.
1: So if you have an inclination that your loved one or your child is considering suicide, you have to not stop until you get the truth. You have to say, look, I'm really worried about you. I really love you. I really care about you. You're, you're, you're so important to me. I'm going to ask you three very important questions, but I need you to answer me truthfully. I need you to be completely 100% honest. I'm not going to judge you, whatever the answers to your questions are. And you're not in trouble. This is a common theme for so many people around the world. 40 people, uh, die, uh, you know, every, I think we were saying earlier, the, uh, Every 40 seconds every 40 seconds someone dies by suicide. Pardon me, I usually and and so you say, you know, I'm worried about you, I'm thinking about you, I care about you. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you made plans to take your life? And do you have the means? Wait for each of those answers. If any of them is yes, sit down with that person. You don't have to have all the answers. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to go to a psych ward. Sometimes what they desperately need is someone to sit next to them and listen to understand, not to respond. Just to hear their pain, just to be with them in that moment, just to take it all in, just to hold a safe space for them, and say, "I've got your back," and I'm never gonna let let you go. And and then you, then when they get all of it out, when they when they're when they're exhausted from telling their truth. You just look them in the eyes and you say, I promise you, suicide is not the answer. Suicidal ideations are the greatest liars we know. We don't have to listen to them. And what I do with my story is I travel the world sharing with people of all walks of life, of all age groups, that they don't have to learn the hard way like I did. That they can find their light at the end of the tunnel. If they haven't found it yet, they haven't walked far enough to reach it. And so trying to help people recognize their true value is what I do as I travel and just trying to write books and make media and, and and shift people's thinking through all art forms and get them to recognize that they are worthy, that they matter, that they matter to me. And even though I don't know them from Adam, they're human and so am I, and that's all I need. And if we could have more people be that compassionate and empathetic to those in pain a lot I think a lot more people would survive their pain if we, can, te- if we can teach people to have because I don't know if you know this but gratitude and resilience are the two most protective factors from suicide so if we can teach people to hold gratitude even inside their most painful moments their most struggling times their biggest hardships they can be resilient from that pain and they can survive it
0: do you when you look back what's the biggest change you feel from pre, like, cause you say, I mean, you're very honest. I love it. You have bipolar one, correct? Like yeah. you still struggle. You still have suicidal ideations. So yeah. what, to, what is the biggest difference in your life now versus back then that you're like, you guys, this, this is what I'm telling you.
1: You, you know, uh people tend to look at me and say, oh, he's well now. And that's nonsense. I live in recovery every day like one would live in recovery from substance use disorder. I have all the symptoms I've ever had. I just know how to manage them and control them. I follow a regimen and a routine that keeps me sane to the best of my ability. I have a loving wife who's, who's, who's my greatest supporter. Um, but the biggest thing is that I'm self-aware with my disease. I know when I'm having a hallucinatory episode, which I didn't used to know. I used to live in them and I used to see and hear things that didn't exist to anyone but me and believe them to be real. Now I know what a hallucination is. I know I can differentiate between the true reality, everyone's reality and my reality. Mm. Um, um, I'm self-aware in my mania. So when I skyrocket into manic behavior, I know I'm there. I know how to bring myself back down, but not down to a depression. So I bring myself to a level playing field. Um, I do everything I can to stabilize my brain health on a regular basis. And does it always work? No. Do I often have symptoms? Yes. But that's okay. I accept that. That's a part of my journey. And accepting the journey allows you to survive the pain as well as gratitude and resilience. Accepting that you're going through something and not denying it allows you to thrive despite of it. And that's the clarity I have every day is that I know how to thrive even in my darkest hour. It's so interesting. Cause
0: one of the things I, was, I teach all the time is I always say, meet yourself where you're at. And I say, if you can't meet yourself where you're at, you cannot grow at all because then you're trying to grow from a place of a false start. Like, so whether you're deeming where you're at as a negative or you're trying to put yourself somewhere else because you deem that as a positive, which we all know is bullshit, but it's like you have to meet yourself where you're at because from there comes the true ability of, like you said, resilience. And you have to, and it's hard. So talk a little bit. Can we go in a little bit to like, when do you feel like, so you say you have hallucinations and this stuff. When for you, and I know you had a rough beginning, but was there a time, like, was it something hormonal? Is there something that changes where it starts to kick in or do you feel like you've been like this? Is this like the disease, like does the disease start at some point or do you know what I'm trying to ask? Like, was there a time in life you're like, yeah, it was like my teenage years and I really started to notice it. Yeah,
1: so, so I definitely had a lot of energy from like fourth grade on up and people would call me the Energizer Bunny and maybe that was a sign of mania, who knows. Um, but I would say, um, I, I, I first experienced symptoms at 17, uh, could it have been hormonal changes? I don't know, potentially. Um, but there was a, a certain very particular situation that occurred to me that occurs to actually a lot of people. I had been on a medication for epilepsy. I still have epilepsy. I've been on a medication for epilepsy since, I think since fourth grade. And I've been on it from fourth grade until 17. And at 17, my brain lesions had healed so they removed me off of the medication. What the doctors neglected to understand or rather didn't know until later was that that very same medication would later be treated for bipolar depression. Um, And if someone was taking it who had bipolar, but it was, uh, it was uh, hindering the symptoms, it was dampening them. So um, when they rapidly took me off this epileptic medication without titrating down, I had a complete mental breakdown. Wow because the, the, the medication for my epilepsy was hiding my bipolar. Uh, And actually this is quite common. This particular medication and this particular epileptic slash medication situation is quite common around the world. And what was when, 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 when it was first known as a, when it was first became known as a bipolar man, it actually had happened to a lot of people. Um, And so At 17, I have this complete breakdown at 19, I can't take it anymore. And I go attempt to take my life in the way that I did. Wow. So,
0: you know, you talk to a lot of survivors, obviously. It's what you do. How, well, I was actually going to say, how many, how many survivors do you talk to? Is actually what I mean to ask. How many survivors do you talk to versus those who are attempting or thinking? Or ideating.
1: So do you mean survivors of suicide attempts? Yeah. Of any kind? Yeah. Like people um, who have I mean, actually tried and survived. Oh, gosh. Um, in 23 years of doing this work, probably hundreds of thousands.
0: And in most of those, when people survive, do you feel it's a similar reaction or it's across the board of like relief? I'm glad I didn't do it. Or
1: I, I receive... I received the same amount of messages from people who say that things like my story saved their life. And it's also in the hundreds of thousands. Um, as I do receive messages from people who say I attempted, I survived and I'm glad I'm alive. And I, and I, and, and, and I had uh, either instant regret or, um, I regretted what I did or I'm just so glad to be here. Um, or I wasn't supposed to be here those kinds of messages you know I wasn't supposed to be here I should I should be gone by now, and um people but i do I'll be honest I do receive messages from people who say I'm really angry that I survived right. and that's a whole other animal you know so you have to, to you know to you have to approach that a little differently um and when I approach that that kind of response, I just try to remind them why why it's so great that I get to meet them either online or in person or otherwise, um, and I'm grateful that they're still alive, um, even if they're not, right. you know, so, so there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a difference between the, the two kinds of messages, but they're still able to be reached in that moment. And, you know, uh, in, in 23 years of doing this work, um, I've never, I've never lost anybody. Um, Just just trying to help people realize how much they, how important they are. And that's the thing when people, people, every one of us has a negative inner critical voice. All of us. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how tough you are. You have a negative inner critical voice. It comes from every spiteful, hateful, hurtful, mean, negative, horrible thing that's been said or done to you. It doesn't come from you. It comes from external sources. Then you internalize it. And then it becomes your voice. Um, I help people reverse that negative inner critical voice to something more positive, you know, something more accurate and hopeful. Uh, how do you do that? I, I, w- one of the things we do is when I'm, when I'm doing a, a presentation, um, whether it's a keynote or at a high school, whatever um, I have the entire audience that's whoever's physically capable stands. We stand quietly. We take out our phones, we press record on our camera. And I say, okay. And and we're yelling at the top of our lungs. We say, okay, we're going to reverse the negative our critical voice. You say your name. I'm going to say my name and then I'm going to say my name. You say your name, then repeat after me. So I say, Kevin, and they say all of their names simultaneously. So you hear a bunch of different names, thousands of different names. You are. And then they say, you are. And I say, wonderful. And they say, wonderful. And it just echoes through the entire theater, you know, or the, or, the, or, the, or the gym or wherever we are. And I say, Kevin, you are fantastic. And they all say, fantastic. And then we go on like that. And uh, you are gorgeous, you know. And then I, I kind of make it a little goofy and I go, you are the dog diggity best. And, I, and especially <laughs> with like, especially with like kids, they, they go crazy when I say that because they're like, oh my God, that's so goofy. But they all say it loud and proud. Um, and, and, and then, you know, uh, we come down and I say, we just reverse the negative and inner critical voice to something positive and powerful and hopeful. Every time you look in the mirror and self-loathe, like so many of you do, reverse it. Reverse it to something positive.
0: It is so smart and it's so interesting because it is true, and I, I talk about this all the time too. You have to take yourself from one place to another, and it is a journey because you're changing the neural pathways. Like yeah. and eventually they change and it starts yes. to flow differently, but you have to do the work to change. It's like you have to yeah.
1: change the like the whole positioning. It, it's it's and- it's it's the whole adage of recite, repeat, believe. If you recite something wonderful, lovely, and positive about yourself. If you repeat something wonderful, lovely, and positive about yourself, you're going to eventually believe it. It's scientific. It is the neural pathways of the brain. They are changing. And you think of like what every major faith is built upon, reciting a prayer, repeating a prayer, believing said prayer. So put the faith aspect out of it. Do it for yourself. Do it for your ability to recognize your inner beauty. Um, and because- that's, what I, that's what I do because I, I self-loathe for years. Right. i self loathed for so long, and my doctor taught me this trick like just look in the mirror, and every time you say something hurtful, reverse it, do the exact opposite and, and I did that for it. years, I did it for years, and yes, it took a couple of years, but I started to believe the good stuff. it was amazing.
0: I love that you admit it took a couple of years because I think that's, yeah, what, you know, people expect to like overnight. look in the mirror and then feel better. <laughs>
1: no, no, it's not going to happen overnight. It's just like if someone says do breathing exercises and you do one breath, that's not going to do you any good. <laughs> right. You got you to do basal nerve breathing for like an hour before you feel better. But just like, just do it, you know, put in the effort, put in the work. And that's the thing that really bugs me is like there, there's so many people that want the uberfication of their wellness right now. They want that one pill or that one biohack or that one whatever it is solve their problem. You have to put in the time, energy and effort to change your brain to change your life. And in order to do that, uh it's work. And as my father always used to say to me, Kevin, hard work because nothing good ever came without it. It goes to say it goes the same for your well-being.
0: Yeah. Do you were you Surprised, because you talk a lot about the self-loathing, you talk about, you know, when one, you know, attempts to take their life, um, usually they feel like they're a burden or it's making yeah. life easier. There's no point on them being there. Were you surprised when you survived at the reactions you had? Like, did, was it, did it not match what you were feeling to begin with? Like the reactions from your parents or?
1: I was blown away. I thought they hated me and they all showed me how much they loved me. I got, uh, I couldn't tell you how many letters I got at the hospital from people I hadn't spoke to in seven years who were like, you should have called me, Mm. you know, Um, nobody wanted me to die. Nobody.
0: And you thought nobody cared. I thought
1: nobody cared. I was the greatest lie I ever told myself. Was that nobody cared?
0: You know, there was a moment I think in your documentary where a guy admitted that the one line from your speech of saying, "And what exactly? I don't want to die. I want to live," was the thing that saved his life. Just that line, not the fact. Wendell
1: Fields. Wendell Fields. Yeah, yeah. And
0: it made me cry because. It was like, wow, just putting in that space for someone that you may have regret. Like you, you just handed someone like a box of space of like, there's possibility in this space that you're going to regret it because you will, you realize on the way down, because I'm assuming when you're on your way down and you tell me, but I'm assuming there's a spiritual thing that happens that you're now connected more to your higher self. And so you're connected into that heart space, probably more, right? And you, maybe you realize it or don't. And you, I'm guessing part of the reason you regret it is because you actually are able to feel the love that you couldn't feel because you were in your physicality, which was hurting you.
1: I mean, on the bridge, all I could see was death. But when I went over that rail, all I wanted to do was live. And I, I prayed on the way down. God, please save me. I don't want to die. I made a mistake. And, and I hit that water. I went down in that water, 70 feet. I shattered my vertebrae and I just prayed. God, please save you... me, I want to die. I made a mistake. And uh, and then that this sea lion came to my aid and kept me afloat until the Coast Guard board arrived behind me. And um, you know, you, you can't make that up. It's like no. how did how did this How did this how did this creature that doesn't speak my language save my life?
0: And it wasn't one second. I mean, I'm sure it took the Coast Guard a little bit of time to get there. Yeah, like they took things... a minute.
1: And this yeah. creature circled beneath me until the Coast Guard board arrived behind me it saved my life it knew what it was doing
0: i mean the coast guard said to you what was it 57 bodies have been pulled and you've yeah, only been the only survivor yeah.
1: in, in 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 that unit's uh in that unit's timeline they they had pulled 57 dead bodies from the waters in that year they had pulled 26 dead bodies from the waters and one live one me and when they told me that i i got this crystal clarity like i'm meant to be here and No matter the pain I'll ever be in again, I can't ever do this. I can't ever attempt again. And in 22, 23 years, I haven't attempted again, even living with regular thoughts of suicide. And the way I do that, and what I want to express to your audience is what I kind of said a little bit earlier, but I'll say it again. Two things I do every time I'm suicidal. I need help now is what I say to anyone around me. I need help now. You actually and ask. if the person or people around me aren't willing or able to help me, I'll go to the next. I'll keep going to people until I find someone who will. And then what I do is I say my thoughts don't have to become my actions; they can simply be my thoughts. My thoughts don't have to become my actions; they can simply be my thoughts. And and that's how I survive this kind of pain every time. And that's really how anybody can survive this kind of pain anytime. Um, there, it's a, it's a simple two prong technique. To, to say, just pause, just take a breath. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. None of us has uh, broken the uh, the path to immortality. Give yourself time plus hard work for things to change. You know, I often look at people like, mm-hmm. like Oprah, right? Okay, Huge example of triumph over incredible adversity, right? Yeah. You know, what she went through as a child, what she dealt with as a young adult, um, to where she is now, maybe it's one in a million. Maybe we can't all be like Oprah. But you know what? If she can survive that kind of epic pain, we can too. Yeah. And it's looking at these prime examples of people all around the world. Who have survived torment and pain and struggle and war and hate and 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 battled their inner demons and and, and they've stayed here to, to, to thrive. Think of all the people that are in recovery from severe addictions and they're married now and they have children, or you know, this is possible. It's been done. You can do it. Stay here.
0: Just stay. And I mean, I think. Look, I feel like we all have an element of this, having to understand your thoughts are not you. How did you pray? Like because you were saying you were praying on the way down. Were you someone who prayed before you jumped?
1: Yeah, born and raised Catholic, still Catholic. You know, practicing. I I, I, I prayed my whole life. The only time I wasn't praying was when I was standing atop that Golden Gate Bridge walkway, looking down, believing I had to die. At that moment, the only moment I ever lost my faith, as my father is fond of saying, I found God on the way down. But do
0: you, did you, but, do you feel like your relationship with God changed on the way down?
1: It didn't change on the way down. I was just reminded of my faith. I, I, my faith was reinvigorated. And, um, you know, I, I get I get hated on about that online but I don't care. I'm not In I'm not pushing I'm way? not pushing my faith on you. I'm not telling you to go be a Catholic. I'm just telling you this is how I feel. This is what I know. This is who I am. This is who I'll always be. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, and
0: um I do and, feel like
1: it's interesting
0: because I feel like so much of your story of like look, the seal, the doctor who was there to operate which was one of a yeah. kind the of timing. It's regardless if it's Catholicism or it's just remembering you are connected to something more. Yeah, I feel like that could be very helpful to a lot of people. And again, it doesn't have to be a specific religion. It can be whatever version that works for anyone. It could just be talking to someone who's passed on, just remembering that you have
1: more out there supporting you. Right. I'm asking you to have faith in the human condition, have faith in your ability to survive pain, have faith in your ability to be a better person than you were yesterday. Yeah. Have that kind of faith. To change your perspective, to change your perception, to see life differently, and to become the person you were meant to be. None of us are meant to die by our hands. None of us. No. We have a 400 trillion to one chance of existing on this planet. Pardon me, a one in 400 trillion chance of existing on this planet. To be birthed in this world, you have a one in 400 trillion chance to be birthed in this world, to even exist in the first place. So that means you're not supposed to take your life. Right. It means you are given a gift of existence and you're meant to stay right here no matter the pain you might be in, but there's a way to get around that pain. There's a way to get past that pain. There's a way to survive whatever you're going through at home right now. One of the biggest things I see, and I don't want to deny it, one of the biggest things I see in high schools I travel to across the world are kids that come up to me and say, I'm being abused and neglected at home. How, how do I live from that? Mm. And I have to remind them that someday they'll be out of that home, making it on their own. And they have to build that life and stay here for that life. And that's hard to do. That's a tall order to ask a 14-year-old to wait till she's 20 to get out of that life situation and to maybe thrive. That's rough. Really rough. That's really rough.
0: Now you've, look, you've taken your childhood and, you know, you were in foster care and then adopted by your parents. Um, and you said both your birth parents or bio parents, I don't know what you call them had issues with drug addiction, correct? So yeah. do you know if you were born into that? Like, were you born, were, was it like in your bloodstream when you were born? No. So
1: I, I wasn't born on drugs. Um, they started doing drugs and out and drinking alcohol excessively after they had me and my brother. Um,
0: but they're older lived, or younger.
1: Uh, he was older. He was 10 months older. But uh they, they lived we we lived in abject poverty. Uh we, we lived uh in crack motels. Um we were fed Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk, what they could steal. Um it, it was a a really rough start to to life. Um and then and then my brother and I were in foster care and, and we were supposed to be adopted together and he died. Uh we both got bronchitis, he died. Uh and so Um, as a doctor in foster
0: care with, through bronchitis. Yeah.
1: Yeah. With, we we were together and and he passed away. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, after that, uh, I immediately developed a severe detachment disorder from reality and abandonment issues that follow me until today. So being ripped from my birth parents' arms, having my brother being taken from me by, by dying, it it just, uh, it, 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 as an infant, even it made me very, very sick. Um, when I got to the Heinz home, my, 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 my forever home, um, you know, I look at Pat and Debbie Heinz. They're only my mom and dad. They're not my adopted mom and adopted dad. They're my mom and dad. They saved my life. They, They plucked me from obscurity. They, they gave me a future. They gave me hope, my first hope. Um, uh, but you know, When I went from that trauma to that stability, it was a 30 day period of being violently ill. And Debbie and I not sleeping a wink and doctor after doctor, test after test, million dollar workup on an infant pre-verbal, couldn't even talk. All of that had to go on before they could get me to stability. And I'm just so lucky that Pat and Debbie made me their son. You know? and and growing up, I thought, I've got this made in the shade, you know, I live this great life. But then at seventeen, you know, partially because of that pill issue with the, with the medication from epilepsy, but partially because my brain was ready to break anyway. I think, you know, it was it was it was coming one way or another. Um, I had that breakdown and then at 19, I did that attempt and, um, it, 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 it's been a, it's been a hell of a journey. 10 psych ward stays in the last 22 years for suicidal crisis. The first three were involuntary forced and against my will. The next seven, I walked into those psych wards and said, I need to be here. I won't be here. And I think that's where that self-awareness really stuck was that I wasn't going to allow my brain pain to rule what I did next.
0: Were there times of different acceptance? So obviously, you know, you had your attempt, you survived, you were grateful. And then as you went more into your own depth of your own acceptance, was there a period where you kind of thought yourself that maybe this would go away? And then there was another level of like, oh, this is different. Or right away, you knew
1: I have to shift things. I I needed to shift things every time it happened. Does that make sense? Like every time I was back in a psych, where every time I was back in a dark place, I had to put in the work to like extra work, not just the work I was already doing, like extra work to get back to a level playing field. And even keel, as they say, you know, um, And in doing that and getting used to that and having that acceptance for the struggle, um, I was ready to take that, that on.
0: So, and I know your time is short today, so I want to respect it because I know you have to go soon. Let's end talk again. I know we kind of opened up this way, but let's say you have a friend who just won't return phone calls and you know they're going through something. What do you do to that friend that's become such a shut in or, Maybe they're naturally a recluse and they kind of like go through, you know, ups and downs.
1: One of the biggest tools for someone like that, who's kind of in denial and not really engaging with you is to write them or have three to five people who know and love and care for them, write them a letter, handwritten Mm. letter. Five things are in that letter, love, compassion, care, empathy, lack of judgment, and the signs, symptoms, and triggers that you're worried about because that person is in denial. If they receive three to five letters that basically say the same thing in different words, um, oftentimes their minds are opened and they go, okay, I do need help. And then they go get it. It's pretty fascinating. Like When you show someone how much you care rather than just telling them it has a tremendous impact on the, on their brain. Um, When you physically show them, you care. A lot of the things, one of the things people are doing now is sending care packages, like uh, all their favorite things in one big basket, plus those letters saying, Hey, we got your back. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a really, really a great, a great way to, to, get them to, to feel safe, um, in, in opening up and, and finally being real about what they're going through.
0: And talk about, like you said, how, when you were on the bridge, I think someone asked you to take their picture, right? Like a selfie and, and you were like, but nobody asked me if I was okay. Talk about that too. Like I remember once I went to a movie by myself and I was bawling the entire movie and I couldn't get my shit together. Someone followed me out of the elevator to the parking lot and said, I just want to make sure you're okay. And I kind of giggled because I knew it was from this movie, but I said to them, wow, like that's amazing. And how incredible that you did that. And thank you.
1: Like, I appreciate that. Sometimes all people need is a little compassion. And if you see someone, whether you know them from Adam or not, in what you deem to be lethal emotional pain, are you okay? Is something wrong? Or can I help you? It could save their life. But you better be there for the answer.
0: Mm, well, that's interesting. Meaning just don't tell you got to walk the walk.
1: Walk the walk. I wrote, I wrote a poem. I wrote a poem in my book. If, if you, if, if you want to, if I can share a passage real quick. Please. It's, um, it's, really, it's really short, but this is my book, uh, Crack Not Broken, Surviving and Thriving After a Suicide Attempt. And um, I wrote in it a couple things. The first quote is by Babatunde Olatunji, and it says, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is a gift. That is why they call it the present. And then I wrote, let us always and forever cherish today. And the second uh, is a limerick I wrote in eighth grade about how I felt as a child. Hmm. Um, He is ancient yet ageless. He is ticking yet timeless. He runs, not hunted. He chases. He is a man of many faces. He is the darkness. I am the light. I was cracked, but will never be broken. And I deem that to be the bipolar mind.
0: You wrote that in eighth grade?
1: I did. Wow. Yeah. And it, it's where I got the title for my book. It's, it's where I just i just felt that so deeply. And I, I put it to paper. And I don't think I ever showed it to anyone for a long time. I think I, I think the first time I showed it to anyone was in this book. My wife might've seen it, but that was about it. Um, when, When you feel like you are a burden to everyone, it's very easy to leave. If we could help people understand who are struggling, that they're a burden to no one, I think we could help a lot of people stay.
0: That's beautiful. And look, I know you have to go. And I would I have so many more things I would talk to you about. I'm very appreciative because I think you've really helped not only give ways people can actually help, but also destigmatize it so people understand, which is what I think we're in that shift in this point of people finally realizing like you said, this is not something people can help. No one's doing it on purpose. No one's trying to piss anyone off. No one's being selfish. It's like, it's a disease. And how can we be more compassionate and help people through it? Um, And look, it's tricky sometimes on the outside, wanting to be careful how you reach in because you, and so I feel like you've really helped, really helped make it clear how one can reach in and how they can do that. And I mean, we should all be That's all we have is each other. Let's help each other smile. You know, just smile. We have to and I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, no, of course. Have a great one and thank you. Take care. Just wanted to remind you guys: if you want to go deeper, if you want more, we offer so many certifications and courses. There is Tarot 101 coming up. We have psychic mediumship. We also have a Reiki level two. So if you've been certified in one, again, these are all online. You can do them from anywhere, but they are live, so with great interaction. Plus, always check out our website. We have incredible classes. And if you are in the LA area, there's always workshops that we do live and in person. So check those out as well. We love this community. We love all of us growing together. Let's continue to do so.